Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Morning to you all, and you're welcome to this morning's Signpost webinar. This webinar is, is brought to you by, by Chagask in association with Dairy Sustainability Ireland, the National Rural Network, and Food Drink Ireland. My name is Pat Murphy, Head of Environment Knowledge Transfer with Chagask, sitting in for Mark Gibson while he, he takes some well-earned leave. I'm joined this morning by Catherine Keener, uh, Countryside Management Specialist with Chagask. Uh, she will be hand- handling the questions. Catherine, you're welcome. Good morning from Chagask Adalton, Pat. It's timely that we're joined by our guest today. Uh, Fergal Monaghan is Project Manager with the Hen Harrier Project. Good morning, Fergal. Good morning, Pat. Uh, we think we're heading for some consultation process in relation to the uh, agri-environment climate schemes over the next week or so. Yeah, I understand uh, the the public consultation is imminent. Uh, It's a very exciting period and I hope it's the the beginning of an agri-environment climate measure with with, uh, more ambition to deliver for, uh, for the challenges that we face. You've been managing the uh, project managing the the Harrio project now for a number of years. Yeah, Pat, I was a farm advisor for for twenty two years. Before that, uh, I spent a, a lot of time working in uh, upland areas, uh, particularly in Connemara and around the west of Ireland. Uh, but we've been running the the Hen Harrier project since twenty seventeen. Uh, it's a pilot project, but it's um, it's quite large in scale. It is uh, a budget of twenty five million. Um, we now deal with 1,500 farmers uh, and close to 40,000 hectares of, of land. So I think we've one of the, the, the things that we've one of the most important things we've learned in it is that it's feasible to take this approach at scale, uh, and I, I think it can um, has a lot to offer in informing the, the next cap. Okay, well, without further ado, your presentation I think should give us some insights into the learnings you've had over a period of years and the potential impact that might have or the potential implications of that uh, for agri-environmental schemes. So if you want to share your, your screen and we'll, we'll fire ahead with your, your presentation. Um, I would like to divide this talk into two parts. First, I would like to talk about the two large, the two large EIPs in the current cap, the challenges Uh, they faced and the solutions that they helped to develop. And secondly, I would like to offer my views on how the lessons learned in these projects can inform the rollout of the next rural development program. Ireland's current RDP introduced the European Innovation Partnership Model to support the delivery of ecosystem services. Two large EIPs, the Hen Harrier Project and the Freshwater Pearl Mussel Project, used the flexibility of the EIP model to develop landscape level and results-based approaches to the conservation of two flagship species. I believe they were quite successful in this, not least because they were able to demonstrate that such an approach can be delivered at scale. The current cap is now coming to an end and the model pioneered in these two projects and in the Burren program will see more widespread use in its successor. The hen harrier and freshwater pearl mussel projects were species focused, in one case on a bird and in the other on a freshwater mollusk. As animal species go, these two are very different, and it might appear that conservation efforts directed at them would have very little in common. This is not the case. The common thread connecting these two species is that both are impacted by the characteristics and condition of the wider landscape. Why is this important? The freshwater pearl mussel and the hen harrier provide good examples of not only why action at the landscape level is needed, but also of the range of ecosystem services that conservation efforts directed at these high level indicator species can deliver. These include co-benefits for other species, for habitats, for water quality, for flood and wildfire resilience, and for carbon capture and storage. But there is another way of looking at this. It is that the delivery of these, it is the delivery of these ecosystem services that enables the conservation of those flagship species. 
while local priorities will always dictate some tailoring of programs at key locations and for specific objectives. It is the restoration of high quality functional habitats that is the key requirement to meet the challenges we face. Species diverse grasslands, good quality peatlands, clean water in streams and river catchments with near normal flow characteristics will deliver for biodiversity, for water quality, climate adaptation and mitigation. And these should be our goals. The freshwater pearl mussel is dependent on suitable substrates in which to grow, clean gravel, not choked by silt or smothered in algae. It needs a suitable and reliable flow of water in the streams and rivers it inhabits. It needs channels that do not dry up in dry weather and a healthy population of trout or salmon to host its larvae. All of these requirements are dependent on conditions across the entire catchment. Inevitably, this includes many farms and other land users. The erosion of peat or soil upstream can lead to the deposition of silt in gravel beds, potentially cutting off the supply of oxygen to young mussels. The loss of plant nutrients to water can lead to excessive growth of algae smothering the mussels habitat. Drainage, erosion or soil compaction can change the flow characteristics of water courses, making them more vulnerable to summer droughts and to flash floods following intense rainfall events. Barriers to fish migration can impact the movement of trout or salmon and prevent the freshwater pearl mussel from completing its life cycle. All of this means that efforts at conserving the species must engage at the catchment level. To be successful, they need to integrate environmental action by farmers with addressing the pressures arising from forestry practices, land drainage, flood control, road and bridge repairs, and fisheries management. For freshwater pearl mussels, limiting action to individual farms or even selected fields within those farms is doomed to fail. In most cases, the bulk of the problems are coming from relatively small, discrete areas. A voluntary results-based approach can incentivize the farmer to address these, but that may not be enough. Some problems are just too challenging, too complex, or exist at too great a scale to expect a farmer in a basic agri-environment contract to deal with. Extra support, both financial and technical, is needed. Without this focused effort, the spend on agri-environment measures will underachieve. While the average quality of farmland habitat may be improved, the problems at the critical sites that have the greatest impact on the wider catchment go unaddressed. For the, likewise for the hen harrier, effective conservation action also requires us to look beyond the farm gate. We must ensure that at a population level, the species basic requirements are met. Hen harriers need safe nesting and roosting habitats, an adequate supply of prey and protection from excessive nest predation and disturbance. Let's look at the species requirements through the year, the pressures they face and how these pressures can be eased. The birds return to the uplands in March. They form pairs, establish territories and build a nest. The critical requirements at this time of the year are suitable nesting habitats, ideally tall heather or scrub. The pressures that impact on the species at this stage are not only those that affect the availability of these habitats, but also those that may deter the birds from utilizing them or those that expose them to disturbance or predation. At this stage, the birds have not yet invested in egg laying or rearing chicks and they are easily spooked, often abandoning an otherwise suitable territory. Tree felling, the use of machinery or off-road vehicles, wildfires, free ranging dogs or people approaching the nest can all frighten them off. Forestry plantations can lead to an increased vulnerability to predation, possibly creating ecological traps where nest failure rates later in the breeding season are likely to be very high. So it is not enough to say to the farmer that you should allow more scrub to develop. Of course we need more scrub, but to achieve this we need to facilitate it through reform of the rules governing land eligibility for direct payments. Addressing the risk of disturbance demands engagement with other stakeholders, in particular those involved with forestry, the wind energy industry and recreational users. 
Reducing the vulnerability to predators requires coordinated action on different farms and, and on forested lands to minimise the interface between forestry and open landscapes. Mitigating the wildfire risk needs management that creates a less vulnerable landscape, one where fuel species like Millennia or gorse are not dominant over large areas. This requires active management, management that farmers are well placed to deliver. It requires grazing by the right animal at the right place at the right time. For example, mature cattle grazing millennia in June and July or horses browsing on gorse in February. Grazing solutions supplemented by targeted rewetting and strategic planting of broadleaf trees can provide habitats, facilitate the storage of carbon in soils and reduce the risk from flooding and fire. The outputs of such a system are different. They are not as obvious as beef or lamb. Livestock products will certainly be an output of this system, but perhaps not the dominant one. The really valuable output will be a more resilient landscape, one that helps address the biodiversity and climate crisis. This style of management may not always be economically optimal, but it is key to attaining greater resilience to climate change in an upland setting. As the summer progresses, the risk of disturbance continues to be a pressure, but the availability of prey becomes increasingly critical. After the chicks hatch, they grow fast and their demands for food are enormous. If the adults are to supply this, they need an abundant supply of prey in a landscape that suits their hunting technique. To understand the scale of the challenge they face, we should consider that the male bird has to feed the female while she is sitting on eggs. Obviously, he has to feed himself as well, so he is hunting for two. When the eggs hatch, he has to provide for himself, the female, and possibly up to five chicks. The demands are huge as the growth of young chicks is very fast, going from an egg a little smaller than a hen's egg to adult size in six weeks. This needs a steady and spectacular supply of food. The female will help as the chicks get bigger, but her absence hunting increases the risk to chicks from inclement weather and from predators. For all of these reasons, it is important that adults can source adequate prey as close to the nest as possible. And that needs quality habitats that support high densities of prey species. Agriculture can really help with this. But habitat quality is not the only issue. In a fragmented landscape like the Hen Harrier SPAs, where more than 50% of the land is forested, hen harriers often have to travel too far to find their prey. So if prey is lacking or if the commute is too long, the supply of food to the chicks can suffer. In the fiercely competitive environment of a hungry nest, the smallest and weakest can rapidly succumb. The result, a clutch of four chicks becomes three, then two, then one. Coordinated action by farmers to improve habitats and to support higher prey densities can partially address this problem. The issue of food supply for young chicks is intrinsically linked to the food supply further down the food chain. Prey species like meadow pipits have to raise chicks too, and they need an abundant supply of insects. Insect numbers are falling in many parts of the world. In Ireland, this decline is not just linked to the use of insecticides, but also to the loss of diversity in our landscapes. Large areas are becoming increasingly homogenous. The loss of hedges, the draining of ponds, the expansion of monocultures of conifers or perennial ryegrass, excessive dominance of hillsides by bracken or millennia, the shift to single enterprise farm, farming units. All of these are narrowing the base of the trophic pyramid, slashing the opportunities for insects, and with that, the productivity of much of the rest of the ecosystem. Addressing this is where the results-based element can really help. Farmers know how to farm, and if they are incentivized and supported to deliver improved habitats, they can do it. Increasing diversity at every level in the food chain builds in resilience to external shocks and supports the transfer of energy from plants all the way to a specialist predator like the hen harrier. For hen harriers, we need to be able to prioritize the delivery of outcomes where they will be most beneficial. For example, promoting the development of scrub, especially in areas remote from forestry plantations. 
This is a real challenge in the SPAs where there is hardly anywhere less than 500 metres from a forested site. We need to increase not just the area of suitable habitat, but also the connectivity between habitats and achieve a reduction in the length of the interface between forestry and open terrain. Achieving this requires a managed retreat from forestry as a land use at certain locations. This will require meaningful engagement with the industry. This does not appear to have happened to date. Another example is the provision of small patches of tillage or wild bird cover crops. While this is a benefit anywhere, ensuring that these patches are widely distributed maximizes their impact on the heterogeneity and productivity of the landscape. This year, farmers in the Hen Harrier project will deliver 30 kilometers of wild bird cover strips, up from 400 meters in 2019, an increase of seven and a half thousand percent. This, the essential step in achieving this was convincing farmers that it, this step was worthwhile and that it was possible and that the supports financial and technical were there to support them. Action to address other environmental priorities, be they the conservation of habitats or individual species or the protection of water quality or adapting to a change in climate will need intervention at the landscape scale as well. But when we talk about landscape level action, we need to be clear what we really mean by this. What is a landscape level action? I believe that we can categorize landscape level actions as follows. First, actions which have a beneficial effect beyond the farm. For example, the restoration of a peatland, preventing carbon loss to the atmosphere and moderating the flow of downslope streams and rivers or the provision of wild bird cover, which supports birds from across the landscape at certain times of the year. Second, actions where coordination between different farmers or between farmers and other stakeholders is necessary. This includes measures to increase the wildfire resilience of habitats at key control points in the landscape. To be effective, such a plan requires action at multiple sites and needs the input of farmers, foresters, the fire services and conservation interests. For example, as you can see on the slide, in West Limerick there are effectively no ponds or lakes available as water sources for helicopters engaged in firefighting. This can be addressed by the strategic location of fire ponds on suitable sites on participating farms. Action Actions which require cooperation between groups of farmers if they are to be fully effective. For example, on commonages, where delivery of improved grazing management may require supporting infrastructure and management of the number and type of animals and the spatial and seasonal focus of grazing. Fourth, community level action. These are actions or payments to engage the rural farmer, the rural community to give farmers a stake in the value of what they achieve. For example, the hen harrier nest bonus where farmers are recognized and rewarded for local nests. This was a measure that accounted for less than 10% of the hen harrier project budget, but has dramatically improved the public perception of the species in SPA areas. And finally, uh, project level actions, such as monitoring or planning, for example, the production of landscape fire plans. These are required to support and inform the delivery of actions elsewhere. So how do we restructure the delivery and rollout of agri-environment schemes to incorporate not just a farm level results-based element, but also the delivery of landscape level interventions? I believe that we need to start with a clear definition of what our priorities are how these vary across different landscapes and on how they interact with farming practices and other land users. This means that one of our first tasks must be the production of local area plans for menu B areas. For the most part, logic dictates that these are based on river catchments. I see plan these plans identifying the local priorities, whether they are the conservation of key habitats or species or action directed at securing carbon stocks or climate adaptation, or helping the landscape and stakeholders 
become more resilient to the growing threats from climate change, like wildfires or flooding. This plan will determine the training needs for farmers, for farm advisors, for project teams, and for Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine staff. It will also identify the skill sets that will be required in the individual project teams working in these landscapes. The plan will also need to determine the monitoring and planning required to support the delivery of landscape level interventions and on the methodology for delivering these. This is a big challenge and the window for completing it will be short. To be successful, it will need engagement with the full suite of stakeholders, DATHAM, farm advisors, MPWS, forestry interests, local authorities, and most of all, with the farming community. In parallel with this initial local planning phase, we need to ensure that the infrastructure and supports required at national level are put in place. We need to consider how the farmer, the farm advisor and the project team interact with each other, with the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine and with other stakeholders, particularly state agencies like the EPA, NPWS and local authorities. What will be required in future agri-environment schemes will be a big ask for farmers. Outside of the Burren and freshwater pearl mussel catchments and the hen harrier SPAs, uh, most farmers have little experience of results-based projects or landscape level actions. The new local teams will need to embark on a considerable outreach program in 2022 to raise awareness and to involve farmers in the production of a local area plan. Considering the fundamental change of direction, the transition from a prescription-based to a results-based agri-environment scheme, a certain amount of hesitancy from some in the farming community is to be expected. To address this, we need to engage farmers early, particularly the early adopters to support the rollout of the program in menu B areas. Many people are naturally risk averse. Farmers are no different. They need the reassurance of positive reports from early adopters, particularly from trusted friends and neighbors. These people from within their own community have far more influence on them than any farm advisor, DAFM official or politician. We need to engage them early. We need their help. There is a pressing need to remove barriers to entry that may exist. Agri-environment schemes need to be easy to access. We cannot go on with a system where a farmer's first experience of an agri-environment scheme is a bill from their advisor. There is a real need to ensure that the application process is efficient and fair, the programs are accessible and that the farmer is not hit with upfront costs before they have a contract. In the Hen Harrier project, we used a simple one-page expression of interest with just the farmer's name, address and herd number. There was no need for a plan to be produced in advance and there was no cost attached to the application process. I believe that a similar approach could and should be used in the agri-environment schemes of the future. We also need to look at the constraints that advisors and farmers will face in the delivery of a new programme. For the farmer, the land eligibility problem has to be dealt with once and for all. We need to keep the application process simple and we need to support the farmer in delivering for the future. The new structures that will be put in place must consider the impact of their decisions on farmers. The new procedures must not load the farmer or the advisor with additional tasks just to ease the admin burden elsewhere. Ultimately, the farmer will have to do most of the work. He is at the sharp end and he is the one from whom the greatest ask is being made. Other stakeholders should remember this. For advisors, this means recognising the huge amount of work involved in assessing tens of thousands of fields in a two or three month assessment season. If this is to be achieved, the advisor will need a significant amount of training, much greater than anything provided to them in the past. They will also need the ability to draw on technical support when and where they require it. We need to ensure the optimal use is made of the advisor's time. This means getting them out of the office and onto the farm, and it means giving him or her the tools they need to do the job. But the role of advisors has to change. 
the advisor has to become closer to the core of the project. At present, the advisor provides a service to the farmer. That's it. This is an underutilization of a valuable store of local knowledge. The good, committed, conscientious advisor must be enabled to contribute to delivering solutions at a local level as well as at the farm level. They must be seen as partners in a joint enterprise. We must invest in their training and continuous professional development, but we must also insist on high standards. There are still too many who, because of habit or training, have the wrong mindset for this work. If they cannot change, they must be encouraged to move on. The apps developed by the Hen Harrier Project and the Freshwater Pearl Mussel Project made those projects feasible. We could not have assessed 16,000 fields annually in the Hen Harrier program if advisors had to take notes in the field and then go back to the office and do a data entry job. Developing a suitable app to keep the advisors doing high value work was not a choice, it was a necessity. Farm advisors, local project teams and the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine itself are there to enable the farmer, to incentivize the farmer, to help the farmer deliver the objectives we all seek to achieve. It is their role to support the farmer, not the other way around. Appropriate non-productive investments that enable the farmer to do better will have a key role. The effective rollout of these non-productive investments will require screening to ensure that they are appropriate. We cannot separate this out and say that it is a planning issue, a local authority problem or an NPWS issue. If they impact on agriculture and the environment, then they are an agricultural issue and mechanisms to smooth their approval and delivery will be needed. In the Hen Harrier project, we developed tools that integrated LIPIS data with information from Hen Harrier monitoring, from field assessments, along with spatial data on water quality from the EPA, Natura 2000 data from MPWS, and information on our archeological heritage into a decision-making tool. This supported the consideration and approval of over 3000 actions a year. We have to start treating data as a resource and use it to inform planning, the targeting of training and the identification of needs and solutions to local challenges. An example of this coordination can operate. The Hen Harrier project used field assessment data to identify fields where Japanese knotweed was recorded. Clusters of these fields were identified and the farmers affected and their advisors provided with specialist training. The use of data in this manner to target the delivery of training and other supports to where they are needed is going to be vital. Tools like these are, are essential going forward and they will require a paradigm shift in how we treat the data arising from the operation of agri-environment schemes. It is no longer just about compliance and calculating payments and penalties. In the future, data is the resource that enables us to achieve our goals. The menu B areas are larger and contain a wider variety of priorities than existed in the Hen Harrier SPAs. As a consequence, the rules within these databases will be more complex than the Hen Harrier project faced. Their development will be more challenging and the training needs for end users will be much greater. But developing these tools is not a choice. It is an absolutely essential basic requirement and we need to start very soon if we are to be ready on time. The local teams are a vital link in the implementation of new higher ambition agri-environment schemes. Their role is to support the farmer and the farm advisor, to lead, to demonstrate, to train, but they must be solutions focused both at a program level and at the farm level. They must be enablers that assist the other actors to achieve our shared objectives. The role will be challenging, but I believe it will be exciting and fulfilling. It is a role that we must be able to attract our brightest and best to fill. But we need to plan how these local teams are going to be structured. How their staff will be recruited and trained, what skill sets those staff should have and how specialist supports for them can be put in place. We need to consider how the local teams interact with other agencies such as MPWS, EPA and LawPro. We have to address the challenges created by scale. 
This approach is ambitious and that means reaching out to thousands of farmers. That will require a devolved local structure, one where the local project officer works closely with local farm advisors, with leaders in the local farming community, the local MPWS conservation ranger and specialists within the larger project team to identify and address local needs. Solving all of these problems is going to be a complex task. It is going to need careful planning. As we approach the start of the next cap, we need to ensure that we are as well prepared as possible. We need to ensure that the basic infrastructure is in place and that everyone involved is as prepared as possible. The cap strategic plan is the essential first step, but we must now look beyond that. The success or failure of the new approach will depend on how effectively we use the preparatory phase in 2022. The changes involved in addressing the biodiversity and climate crises are systemic. They will impact on everyone involved. They will affect how the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine, how farm advisors, and most importantly, how farmers go about their work. What agriculture as a community, as an industry, what we as a society are about to embark on holds a lot of promise. I believe we have an opportunity now to address the many challenges that we face. And yes, I believe it can work. I'm excited by it, but I know it will require changing everything about how we look at our respective roles, how we work and cooperate with each other. It can be done, but we need to be ready and willing to get it done and we need to start straight away. Okay. Thanks very much, Fergal. Okay. Uh, if you'd just uh, stop sharing there now. Okay, we have questions coming in and just a reminder to everybody to put your, your questions in, in, in the questions and answers. Uh, I suppose a, a quick one, just to, to clarify, you, you talked on a number of occasions about menu B areas. Uh, could you give us a little bit of an explanation of, of menu B and I suppose menu A and, and the differences between them? My understanding, Pat, is that uh, areas of, um, uh, let's say, greatest concern areas of high nature value farmland and important river catchments uh, with uh, concentrations of Natura 2000 sites will be, will be contained in a number of uh, menu B areas uh, and the farmers in those areas will be supported um, by local project teams. And menu A, I think, will be a more uh, national uh, scheme uh, that will apply outside of these areas. And we'll recognize that, that farmers in the rest of the country have something important to offer as well. Okay, Catherine, there's a good few questions coming in there. Yes, um, I, first one, if, if farmers are not, um, you know, what we, if we don't want them, if, if the delivery of the agricultural produce um, is not the main aim, how do you think the scheme will need to deliver to appeal to farmers to change that, um, you know, food production um, being the priority to a more mixed um, target? Yeah, well, I think... Uh, uh, Food production, uh, and particularly the production of high quality uh, beef and lamb in these areas will always be uh, a valued output from, from farms. Uh, these landscapes are, were created by agriculture, by the influence of farmers over thousands of years, and maintaining them is going to continue to require uh, farming activity. But it's a type of activity, uh, the delivery of which um, will have to be adjusted slightly to accommodate um, the delivery of other outputs. So it's not a case of conservation versus agricultural production. It's a case of integrating the two uh, in a manner that benefits the farmer. But I suppose even to get them to move to away from being food only. Um... Yeah, there's a big culture shift involved there. And it's a, it's a big ask and uh, it's something that um, the department and that the people who are involved in the local project teams of the future are going to have to make a, a real effort uh, to deliver. And it, to, do, to do that, they're going to have to engage with farmers and 
uh, use leaders within the farming community uh, to sell that message. Um, again, back on the, the mechanisms there, is there any experience of using the both action and the results-based um, models on the same area? Um, yeah, well, at the moment, um, the Hen Harrier project and the Pearl Mussel project, um, they're results-based projects, but they sit on top of GLOSS, which is uh, a prescription-based project. I, so there, there is experience at the moment, you know, 90% of the farmers in the Hen Harrier project are also in GLOSS. Uh, so the, the two uh, operate uh, hand in hand at the moment, but there are um, disadvantages to that as well. And one of the disadvantages is that it greatly increases the transaction cost for the farmer. It increases the risk of mixed messages between two different approaches. And it also creates a certain audit risk about uh, double payments. So it, it's um, it, the marrying of, of the two approaches is something that would require a lot of care. Fergal, you, you, you talked about the, the, the role of the advisor and the potential change role of, of the advisor. Could you give us what your kind of vision for the ongoing role of an advisor throughout the, the, the process of a, an agri-environmental scheme might be? Well, I think at the moment, uh, the role of the advisor's role is as a service provider to the farmer. So in the, in the context of schemes like GLASS, we have the department, uh, we have the participating farmer, and then on the far side of the farmer, we have the advisor. I think we need to bring the advisor much closer to the center of that relationship. I think we need to have more of a, a triangular relationship between those parties. Uh, and we need to use the local, the knowledge that advisors have built up of farming in the areas that they're active in. Uh, we, we have to look on that knowledge as a resource and we have to utilize it in the delivery of these programs. And one way I see it doing that is through a uh, uh, concept of local area partnerships. While we might have menu B areas that cover the bulk of a county, um, we have to, uh, bring the interaction with the farmer down to a, a much smaller uh, level than that. So I see um, pro, you know, project staff uh, on the local teams perhaps dealing with maybe something in the region of 400 farmers each. And I see them meeting you know, several times a year with a, a local area partnership consisting of local advisors and local farmer leaders, perhaps MPWS staff based in the area to identify what the challenges are locally, what the training needs are, and how to deliver those solutions locally, and not to be depending on uh, the top-down delivery uh, for them. For that to work, is there a need for the schemes to be more dynamic than they would have been in the past? Uh, and you talked, I think, a little bit about changes as you went along in, in the Ario project. Yeah, I think one... Uh, a uh, positive note there is that um, uh, the, my understanding is that the local project teams uh, are going to be supported under the cooperation uh, regulation, which I think would give a, a lot more flexibility uh, to how they uh, go about their business uh, than perhaps some of the other regulations would. I know the Hen Harrier project really benefited from the flexibility that was provided under the EIP um, regulation. Uh, and uh, I, I think under the cooperation measure, we'll have um, a, a similar uh, flexibility to, uh, to bring, you know, to create new structures at a local level uh, to address these challenges. Can I come back to just a couple yep. of technical ones there too on the, somebody wondering about the altitude range for the Hen Harrier and a follow on one there about the, um, the, the habitat value of clear-felled conifer forestry on the peat soils? Yeah, um, the altitude of hen harriers. Well, most of the hen harrier breeding sites are in areas that I would describe as hilly rather than mountainous. Um, I, in the past, I think there were records of hen harriers in the Wicklow Mountains, but uh, today most of them would be in, um, would be in upland hilly rather than, uh, than mountainous areas. So perhaps in the, in the region of, um, of 
you know, one or 200 meters above sea level rather than um, significant mountains. And the second question there, Catherine, was in relation- Was the, the value of the clear fell forestry well, for the hen Look, in the short term, uh, when we get clear, forestry clear fell, uh, we often get a, an explosion of, um, of uh, pioneer plant species that, that come in and, and uh, establish in, the, in this newly cleared habitat. And they can, in, in the short term, be very good for, for supporting insects and for supporting small birds. Um, there are problems with that. Uh, one is that the, and under the current system, uh, uh, forest owners are obliged to, to replant. And in most cases, they're obliged to replant within two years. So the short-term benefit that's, um, that's provided by recent Clearfell uh, is just that, short-lived. Short and the replanting process often, um, you know, particularly if if it's delayed for, for two years or more, the replanting process often involves um, clearing that vegetation with, with herbicides and that uh, reduces its, va its, its value post-planting. Post okay, and Pat, just, I see another one there about the, could Fergal comment on the, the results of the, the breeding success rate of the hen harrier across all the, the areas where the project is, um, you know, are, the, are numbers up or down? Right, okay, the breeding success rate is an interesting um, metric. Um, one thing I think that's been learned in the Hen Harrier project through our annual uh, monitoring uh, is that breeding success is quite volatile uh, and that there are good years and there are very poor years. Uh, in 2019, uh, we had an, an exceptionally good year with 81 chicks uh, fledged. Um, unfortunately, 2021, uh, is, is going to be a very poor year. Uh, I think the number of ticks are, they're not confirmed yet and there's still a few active nests, but they're probably going to be in the mid thirties. Um, what are the reasons for this? Uh, I think in relation to 2021, probably the dominant reason is the, the weather conditions in, in May and early June. Uh, I, I think they were a big drag on, uh, on breeding success this year and uh, but I think, the, you know, this is a long lived bird and it's a bird, you know, that in most pairs will get numerous opportunities to breed. And I think perhaps in the past it was underestimated the importance of the occasional very good year like we had in 2019. Um, on the other side of it, if we, we look, take a longer term view and look at the number of breeding pairs, um, we've had an increase in the number of breeding pairs in, um, across the SPA network uh, since the project started, particularly in, in Munster, uh, in the Mulliganish to Musharamore SPA in Cork. I think we had one pair in 2017 when we did our baseline study, and we've had five pairs this year and five pairs last year. So we're, we're very happy with that, that increase. In the stacks to uh, Mulligarrarks, West Limerick Hills and Mount Eagle, which is the largest SPA, the number of breeding pairs in our first year, I think, was 27. Uh, and again, it's not confirmed yet, but it's looking like it'll be around 34 this year. So that's that's uh, quite a substantial increase. In the other SPAs, uh, in the Schlievoctis, uh, that SPA, the population has been in a long-term decline since the SPA was designated. But um, it's been stable at a, at a, I accept, a much reduced level for the last um, three years. And while it's not confirmed yet, there is a possibility that we might have a slight increase um, this year. And if, that, if that's true, that will be the, hopefully be a, be a turning point in the fortune of the species in that SPA. The other two SPAs then, the other three, the Schlieffalems uh, and Silvermines, the population, I suppose in common with the Schlieve blooms, the, the population continued to rise after designation, uh, but has been in, has settled at a, at a, at a lower level uh, since about 2015, 2016. Uh, Bay is a difficult one because it's a small site adjacent to um, a much larger area in Northern Ireland. And the, the numbers, um, 
are influenced very much just by birds moving over and back across the border. So it, it's difficult to look at in, in isolation. So overall, uh, a lot of volatility in product in chick numbers from year to year, but um, we're happy with the, the the improvement in the number of breeding pairs. But we believe we can do a lot better. Question here in relation to contribution to I suppose the overall science. Uh, you're collecting a lot of data. Uh, you're you're building up a lot of knowledge between advisors and your your project team. Uh, how is that being brought into, if you want, the, the, the scientific uh, uh, body of work or, or to what degree are you, you engaging in, in uh, production of papers or, or, or the, a, a more science-based approach? Uh, well, we're supporting um, two uh, PhD candidates, uh, one in G both in GMIT under the... Uh, under uh, uh, Dr. James Moran. Um, one of them is a, is a staff member who's doing a, doing a PhD in his, um, in his spare time and the project uh, gives him study leave to support that. And the other is a, a full-time student that the, that the project um, supports both technically and financially. Um, we're also involved with uh, UCD uh, in relation to um, utilizing uh, our data in, in relation to a track and trace project uh, for um, conventional agricultural uh, production. There's a, a question there about the, the, the EIPs were brought in in the last CAP uh, uh, reform and the, there was the three big ones and then a number of, of smaller ones. Have you any comment in relation to how you feel that that process has, has added to our uh, ability to move forward with, with uh, agri-environmental uh, measures? Um, I think it was uh, the introduction of, uh, or the utilization of the EIP model for, particularly for the large scale projects was a very brave move by the, by the department at the time. Uh, it was it was very innovative and it, it was almost unique in Europe. Um, I think elsewhere, the EIP model was used for shorter term, uh, more discreet, uh, generally technical uh, related uh, challenges. Uh, I think Ireland was the only one to use it um, for large scale appro uh, approaches to um, agri environment challenges. Um, I think it it was. Uh, as I said, a, a brave move and a, and a far-seeing move. Uh, and I think it's done a lot um, to demonstrate that this approach is feasible at a large scale. Uh, you know, we've had pioneers in this area like Brendan Dunford in the, and Sharon Parr in the Burren Project. Uh, but, you know, they were constrained by budget and by geography and dealt with three or 400 farmers. And you know, we needed to go a step beyond that to, uh, to demonstrate that that approach um, was deliverable, was practical for, for thousands of farmers. And I, I think uh, in hindsight, that's probably the most important achievement um, that the Hen Harrier project has had. Uh, and I, I would hope that the lessons that we've learned um, will inform uh, the rollout of the, these Menu B project teams. Uh, there's a question there. Can you give a, an example of how the, the Hen Harrier project benefit from the flexibility allowed that the, uh, you're allowed to, to change the methodologies as you go along? Yeah, well, one feature of uh, mainstream agri-environment schemes is that the, the rules uh, are fixed. Uh, they're fixed at the very beginning and uh, change uh, midstream or the ability for adaptive management uh, is quite constrained. Uh, and I think that wouldn't have suited, it wouldn't have been viable uh, for a project like the Hen Harrier project, where we, um, we had to be able to learn from our mistakes and where we had to be able to adapt to changing circumstances and to changing opportunities. Uh, so I think the flexibility of the EIP model was absolutely essential. I, I don't think what we've done and what the Freshwater Pearl Muscle Project have done and what some of the smaller EIPs have done uh, would have been feasible uh, under any other um, regulatory measure. Catherine, 
Yeah, I have a few there relating to back to the you you spoke of a managed retreat from forestry. And I suppose, are you talking about new plantings there or maybe a change in the replanting option? And then I have a couple of follow on. Yeah, forestry look, is a very contentious issue. I and mean, it's, uh, it's not for me to determine what forestry policy should be. But, um, but there are things that can be done to, to mitigate the impact of forestry on uh, upland habitats. You know, like it or not, it's, it's now a shared landscape. It's a, it's a landscape that agriculture has to share with forestry. Um, but as I said, there are things that, uh, that can be done. And one of, the, one of the most important of those is to look at consolidating the shape of forestry plantations to reduce the length of that interface with open, open terrain. And that might, in some areas, some parts of some plantations, it might require early felling and it, it, it might require um, the replacement of those uh, felled trees with either a, a more open habitat or with, um, with, a, with, with broad-leaved uh, woodland. So uh, you know, yeah, not... that was one of the questions. It, would a strategic broadleaf planting support, you know, it may support a more resilient landscape, but what about the hen harrier for the broadleaves? Yeah, well, um, you know, I said earlier about having the right animal in the right place. Well, I think you can say the same about the tree, you know, the right, the right tree in the right place. So broadleaves have, have an important role. And while hen harriers mightn't be, um, you know, they're not a forest nesting species, you know, they don't nest in broadleaved woodlands either. Uh, scrub habitats are very important to them. But woodlands, uh, broadleaf woodlands are also very important to many of the birds and animals that the hen harrier preys on. So to the extent that they contribute to ecosystem functionality uh, and again, a prey base that the hen harrier can, can exploit, then uh, they, they are potentially very useful. Okay, for the, and just one final one there on the forestry, the, 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 you know, the, the, the belief that the, the, the young plantations provide good nesting sites um, for, for them. I know you touched on it before, but just a comment, um, you know, on yeah, that. Well, I think, you know, the, Hen harriers do nest in, in young plantations. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, but to a large extent, that's because of the, the lack of uh, suitable uh, or more suitable habitats elsewhere. You know, uh, the highest success rate of, um, for hen harrier nests is in patches of scrub and in tall heather, uh, particularly where they're remote from forestry. The big danger with hen harriers choosing to nest in young forestry is that it can act as a, an ecological trap and that the failure rate of those nests because, um, from predation uh, tends to be much higher than those that nest in more um, traditional settings. So yes, they are used by hen harriers, but that's not necessarily a positive uh, development. When you talk about predation, what are the, the key predators that, that cause problems? Uh, foxes, uh, uh, pine marten, uh, other um, other birds, uh, grey crows, um, occasionally even other birds of prey. Uh, look, predation is a, is a normal uh, it's a, it's a normal event. You know that's the, the hen harrier itself preys on meadow pipits and skylarks, so a certain amount of losses to to predation um, can be expected. The problem is where uh, those losses become unsustainable. Uh, and very often that's be uh, because of a change in the structure of the, of the landscape and the habitats. Uh, so, you know, we, we have to look at, you know, at addressing that of, of, of bringing predation losses down below uh, that's, that sustainable level. We have a couple of questions. You, you talked both about a partnership approach and a landscape approach. And there's a couple of questions on, on both in relation to who sh uh, uh, should take a lead on this and how that, that leadership should manifest itself. Right, well, when we talk about a landscape approach, we're, we're, we're talking about you know, bringing our focus beyond the individual farm. Obviously, we have to consider the opportunities that exist on the individual farm but we have to see them in the context of the larger landscape. So uh, when we talk about a partnership approach, um, we have a lot of stakeholders involved in, in our uplands. You know, we have the, the, the farmers who, who manage the agricultural component of that. 
We have the forestry industry. We have various uh, regulatory bodies that from local, author local authorities uh, all the way up to the EPA, uh, MPWS, and then of course the Department of Agriculture who, who are the managing authority for programs like this. So all of them have to be involved in one way or another. And I, I think particularly in the development of local area plans, which I think are an essential precursor to this, um, that all of those stakeholders should, should be involved. Uh, and then in the operational phase, I think we have to continue to, um, to, to, to maintain that local partnership level um, and, you know, to address, to identify and address lo local problems. Okay, Catherine. I just wanted to have you come. Uh, what's the area of land for uh, one pair of breeding birds? Is there kind of a? Mm. Uh, uh, it varies a lot. Uh, look, ideally, um, I you know, with a lot of um, territorial anim birds and animals, the more productive the territory, the smaller it tends to be. Uh, unfortunately, in the hen harrier SPAs, uh, large areas aren't that productive at all, and the birds, uh, particularly the males, have to uh, have to roam over over quite large areas to get the the, the prey that they require. Um, we have had incidents uh, where nests have been as close as a hundred meters from each other. Uh, we have one or two areas that have exceptional densities of hen harrier nests. And I think we have to learn from those areas to see why those landscapes are so productive and is, is there lessons there um, that we could um, bring to other much less productive sites. So no real answer for the questioner there, but um, uh, there is a, a, a lot of variety out there. Question in relation to, I suppose, what's what's ahead for advisors if we get a, a, an expansion to the the eight uh, local uh, support uh, teams that we we talked about and a, a broadening of the area in menu B from from the EIPs, will that mean a, a very significant change for advisors and what are going to be the main elements of that change? Well, I think in the past, uh, we've, we've unfortunately developed into a, a model where the advisor's role is, has largely been one of facilitating applications for programs, about managing uh, a farmer's uh, application and uh, for, for schemes and uh, about dealing with any, any hiccups or, or challenges that the farmer has in their relationship with the department. And frankly, that's not good enough. Uh, what we need to do is we need to bring the adv advisor out of that role, out of the application process and bring them into the field uh, and give them a problem solving role. They're, they should be there to assist the farmer to do better, uh, not to manage um, uh, administrative functions uh, in relation to scheme applications. Uh, so I think it's a huge change for advisors and it is going to need a big investment and an ongoing investment. Uh, not just when I say investment, I don't not necessarily talking about a huge amount of money, but a, a huge amount of focus on uh, upskilling advisors and providing them with opportunities to, um, to develop their skills and to develop their capacity uh, in this area. Okay, I think we've uh, run out of time. I think really uh, enlightening, really challenging talk uh, uh, in terms of, of where we need to go to, to do things right. I think congratulations to you and your, your, your team for the, the, the work you've put in and uh, anyone who's an innovator has to make the mistakes and, uh, and, and figure out ways. And I think uh, there's been a huge degree of success there in, in, in doing that. So. Congratulations on that, and I'm sure you're going to have be playing a major role in, in what's coming down the, uh, uh, coming down the line. So thank you very much for your your time this morning and, and for your sharing with us your your thoughts. Thanks for that, Pat. And I can assure you there was a huge amount of mistakes. Uh, <laughs> I hope that, um, that we, we've uh, we've learned from some of them, and that the people who come after us will have the uh, the benefit of not having to learn by their own mistakes. Uh, 
So if we can do that, uh, it'll be a job well done, you know. So thanks, thanks very much. Uh, just to, to, uh, to say that the webinar uh, today is brought to you uh, in association with our partners on this uh, process, uh, uh, Dairy Sustainability Ireland, uh, the National Rural, Rural Network and Food Drink Ireland. And uh, as always, I'd like to, to express our thanks to our production team of Yvonne Maher and Andy Boland. And next week, we're joined by Sarah Vera from uh, Waterford Institute of, of Technology, and, and she was formerly uh, a member of the Agricultural Catchments Programme, uh, uh, talking to us on managing nutrient runoff uh, from farmyards. So thanks very much, and, and thanks Thank again you. Uh, for the Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.